As we've learned on Haunted Places, everything spooky has an origin story. And there's no better proof than in the Spotify original from Parcast, Mythology. Heroes, monsters, ancient myths. Mythology explores how they all got started. So if you enjoyed this episode you're about to hear and want more, be sure to follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into Mexican history. Our myths may not be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. A warning, today's myth contains dramatizations and discussions of child abuse, graphic violence, and genocide. Please exercise caution for all listeners under 13. Even in the rain, the lights of Guadalajara were magical. Arturo was not like the other children, whose parents made them fear getting sick at the slightest hint of a drizzle. He loved these storms. In the gloom, buildings stopped being electrical fixtures and became enormous swarms of fireflies all around him. He leaped from puddle to puddle on his way back from school. The route he took through the city center was a convoluted maze of streets and back alleys, but he knew it by heart. If it weren't for the traffic, he could walk it blindfolded. Arturo jumped into a particularly large puddle, delighting as the mirror surface exploded into droplets under his shoes. He went on, running toward a nearby alleyway, a shortcut to the Tonola district where his family lived. A strange sound filtered through the pouring rain, causing Arturo to slow. In the murky blue shadows, a sliver of white caught Arturo's eye. It was a woman disappearing into the alleyway. He saw her for only an instant, but something about her was strange. While everyone else seemed to become distant shadows in the rain, she stood out like a beacon. He could hear her weeping as if she was right beside his ears. He followed her into the alleyway. The narrow space was nearly flooded, but the woman didn't seem to care. She was on her knees, shoulders shaking with sobs. Strangely, as Arturo drew closer to her, it seemed like the sound of her crying receded, getting further and further away. He did not know what to say. He had seen his mother cry like this before, and she usually requested a hug. But he knew better than to hug strangers. Uh, hello? Miss? Are you okay? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? I'm sorry. I, I don't know where his children are. If you want to talk to a policeman, I, I can fetch one. No. They cannot help me. Okay, I, uh, I hope you feel better. Arturo turned to leave. He could take the long route today, he reasoned. He didn't want to get any closer to this woman than necessary. A sharp cry sounded behind him. When he turned back, the woman loomed over him, her face hidden by a veil. Don't leave me. Mi hijo hermoso. Lo siento, señora. I can't help you. I need to get home. You are home. 
You are at home with me. You're mistaken, Senora. I live with my abuela. She'll be missing me. Arturo took a step back. His foot slid on the wet concrete. He teetered, and for a horrible moment, he felt like he was going to fall face first into the filthy water. But the strange woman caught him, and that turned out to be far, far worse. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. Today, we're telling the story of La Llorona, the Weeping Woman of Mexican folklore. She's a classic banshee figure, menacing any child who sees her. Because of what became of her own children, she can never enter heaven and is doomed to wander the earth seeking redemption that will never come. Coming up, we'll begin the tragedy of La Llorona. As we've seen many times on this show, most mythological characters exist to impart morality tales or stories explaining the way the natural world behaves. But others are more like ghosts, not elemental figures representing the unknown, but echoes of the cruelty human beings inflict upon each other. La Llorona is such a figure. She's a spirit unique to Mexican folklore, whose origins are shrouded in mystery. Most retellings can agree on the broad strokes of her story, but not on the circumstances surrounding it, or even when the story began. She's said to be the spirit of a beautiful woman named Maria, who drowned her children in a jealous rage when she discovered her husband was seeing another woman. Her weeping ghost now wanders the world, looking for the children she's killed. Whenever a child encounters her, she repeats her original sin and drowns them. The story of Maria is an oral one, so tracing the origin of La Llorona to a specific telling is more or less impossible. Her first appearance in writing came in an 1883 poem by Manuel Carpio. It goes as follows. Pale with terror, I heard, when I was a child, I, an innocent child, that a lawless man killed his wife Rosalia in my town. And since then, in the dark of night, the frightened townsfolk can hear it, the moans of the suffering woman, moaning as she gives in to her agony. For a while, her lament ceases, But then a long cry breaks out, and alone through the streets she crosses, filling all with mortal terror. Then by the river in thick darkness, she leaves crying, wrapped in her cloak. Notice this poem contains no references to infanticide, only a poor woman who was killed by her husband, whose sadness sustains her even after her death. This is the thread that unites all versions of La Llorona, 
deep, unquenchable grief. To uncover the true horrors behind the tale of La Llorona, we have to go all the way back to the 16th century, a formative period of Mexican history. And like so many transitional periods throughout history, the formation of Spanish colonial Mexico was marked by tragedy. The river was always cold. Maria's hands worked back and forth across the washboard, soaking and cleansing the fabric between her fingers. Her children, Hernán and Francisco, played upriver, splashing each other with delight. The cool water delighted them in the scorching summer sun. Maria looked up. The sun was rising higher and higher over the horizon. It was getting late. She would need to finish the washing soon. An all-too-familiar sound carried them from over the ridge, a bell tolling. Maria resumed her scrubbing with even greater vigor. Hernán, Francisco, ven aquí. The children responded immediately, running over to their mother. When they reached her, Maria could see a shadow of disappointment in their eyes. They were sad to see their playtime ending. Dry yourselves. We're going back home to get dressed for church. Remember, do not tell your father I was washing clothes on a Sunday. Bien? The children nodded, though Maria could tell they didn't quite understand why she was so adamant. In truth, it didn't make much sense to her either, but rules were rules. She wasn't supposed to be working on the seventh day of the week, so she only worked when absolutely necessary. Together, Maria and her sons set off on the footpath back to their home. It was a short walk, but the growing heat made the air feel like fire around them. Her children complained constantly, prompting a reprimand from their mother. Behave yourselves, niños. The heat is nothing to me and it should be nothing to you either. You have the blood of Atzlan in your veins. But even as she said these words, Maria felt a pang of guilt. How could she take pride in her heritage when she had forsaken her faith, when that very day they were on their way to pray to a god she did not believe in? Her new home, Sangre del Salvador, was an outpost of this god, a mission built by the Christians who murdered her people and gave her a new name. As carefully as she could, Maria set her basket of clothes in a nook beside the door where it would not be spotted. Then she entered her home as casually as she could. Her husband, Vasco de Soria, was waiting for them inside, but something was different about his appearance today. Instead of wearing his Sunday best, he was dressed in a rough tunic. A breastplate and helmet lay nearby, freshly polished and waiting for their owner. At Maria's entrance, Vasco turned, a wolfish grin on his face. Where have you been all this morning? I thought for a moment you'd taken the children and run away. I've been making sure the children are clean for mass, mi amor. You needn't have bothered. They'll surely be dirty again before you even reach the chapel. Don't you mean we, husband? You will have to go on without me. I've heard word that there is a band of Aztec rebels hiding in the mountains. It is my duty to take my men and crush them before they have time to rally an army. I'm confused. I thought the seventh day was supposed to be a day for prayer. Sometimes we are called away from prayer to do the Lord's work. 
will... Will you be home for supper? I may be gone a week or more. I expect we'll spend most of the time chasing them through the wilderness like rabbits. Perhaps you should take us with you. I could translate for you, and we could avoid bloodshed. My sweet Maria, we do not negotiate with savages. The ones that are left knew there was a choice between salvation and death. They made their choice, just as you made yours. These words haunted Maria even as she and her children knelt for mass in their modest chapel. She had married a man she thought had noble ideals, though he came from an entirely different land and their people had been at war. She had been taught that marriages like hers would help secure peace. But more and more, she suspected that peace was never the goal for men like Vasco. He had treated her tenderly at first, but she soon realized that this tenderness was not genuine affection. He wanted to be sure he wouldn't break her too soon, not until he was sure she was tough enough to see his violent side. These sorts of thoughts kept her from focusing whenever she went to pray. Their priest, a Franciscan friar named Father Garcia, administered Mass passionately, but she barely heard his words. And that was before she saw the boy in the chapel. Her eye caught on a shadow behind the altar, not much taller than her eldest son. Its skin was wrong. Where there was once smooth flesh, a horrible pattern of crusted bumps made the boy look more like a statue than a person. Maria had seen a condition like this before, but its sufferers weren't able to stand up. The infected boy raised a finger to his lips. A moment later, he was gone, almost as if he had never been there. When the service was concluded and the rest of the congregation had dispersed, Maria approached the friar. He smiled pleasantly at her approach. What can I do for you, Maria? I have a question for you, Father. I, I'm not sure how to ask this. If the wrong person heard me, they could say such things. Do not worry. Your words are between you and me alone. I will tell no one. I've done my best to be good to my husband, but our marriage is cold. What do I do? Is there any saving our family? My child, I'm glad you came to me. This is not an unusual problem. You should focus on the parts of your marriage that bring you joy. Can you do that? I don't know. What about your children? My children? If you have no love for your husband, serve him for your children's sake. How can I serve a man who has no love for me left? How does that make me any better than a slave? Do not think of it as servitude, but as a calling. You have a duty to your husband, just as we have a duty to our Heavenly Father. You must find happiness in fulfilling that duty. The only happiness I can imagine is a life without him. Maria, think of the advantage your marriage gives you. Your children will not be seen as refugees of Tenochtitlan. They will be Christian citizens of Nueva España. They will have a better life. Maria thanked Father Garcia for his advice. She appreciated his open heart, but knew deep within that he could not understand her situation. He did not know what it was like to see his way of life dwindle before his eyes. 
and to sleep next to a man who participated in the slaughter of her people. When night finally fell, Maria could not close her eyes. The house seemed strangely lifeless without Vasco, but it was a kind of emptiness she liked. She didn't need to hide her sorrow from this sort of emptiness. A figure stirred in the doorway. At first, she thought it was one of her sons and waited for him to arrive in her bed, telling her about some bad dream. But it lingered at the doorway for only a moment before vanishing back into the outdoors. Maria felt the strangest sensation rising in her chest. Without any outward sign, she knew that it wanted her to follow. Maria rose to her feet and stepped out into the night. The dark was so thick around her she couldn't see anything in front of her, and yet she was sure of where this presence was leading her. It wanted to show her something. She heard the river only a split second before her feet touched the icy water. She recoiled and looked around, straining to see anything in the darkness. Something drifted toward her on the water. It was a figure in white, shining with a strange, faint glow of its own. A voice reached her ears, moaning softly in the breeze. A chill ran up Maria's spine. Though she had never heard that voice before, she knew it well. The specter that glided down the river was no vision. It was a visitation from Siwakowatl. The goddess understood her pain, for she too was in mourning. Not for a single wasted life, but for thousands upon thousands of wasted lives. Maria wanted to run forward and embrace the spirit, but she stayed still, tears running down her cheeks. <gasps> Maria awakened by the river. The moon shone high above, revealing her to be completely alone by the glistening silver waters. Or not quite alone. Shadows moved along the horizon, but these weren't ghosts. They held spears and bows in their hands and wore deeply serious expressions. Maria stiffened when she realized that these were the Aztec rebels her husband had been searching for. They had somehow escaped his army and were camped at the mouth of the river. Coming up, Vasco returns home, and Maria makes a bold attempt for her freedom. Now back to the story. La Llorona has been haunting Mexican folklore since the late 19th century, but experts believe her origin comes from far earlier in history. Before Mexico was conquered by Spain, it was the home of the Aztec people, who we've featured in many episodes of this very podcast. The Aztec goddess Siwacuatl shares many traits that would become central to the legend of La Llorona. An omen of war, the so-called snake woman, has been described as wandering the countryside, weeping and wailing. Two similar Aztec goddesses, Cotlicu and Chalchuhuitle, have been connected to La Llorona as well. Chalchuhuitle was the goddess of waters, who would often send floods to drown unsuspecting subjects. Cotlicu was the mother of the god of war, Huitzilopochtli. 
Like Siwa Kawadal, she wanders the world, keening in grief. In some myths, she even foretold the conquest of Mexico by the Spanish and the crumbling of the great Aztec Empire to this foreign onslaught. So maybe La Llorona doesn't only cry for a pair of drowned children. Perhaps she cries for her countless native children slain during the conquest, those whose voices will remain forever silenced by the writers of history. The crossroads was stained red with blood. A gang of armored men made their way through the carnage, blades held at the ready. At their head was Captain Vasco de Soria. Vasco was in a foul mood. He had left his village of Sangre del Salvador to hunt down Aztec rebels, but all he found was a smattering of Spanish and Portuguese bandits, traitors. Worse, traitors who didn't even put up a good fight. A dozen highwaymen had ambushed them, but even with the element of surprise, they had fallen within moments before Vasco's men. Before him, a wounded bandit crawled away in the dirt, leaving a trail of blood behind him. The fool had tried to attack him with a stolen arquebus, only for the musket to backfire in his face. Vasco followed leisurely. Why would you betray your country like this, compadre? Are you so in need of gold that you join the savages? Answer me honestly, for I am the last face you'll see on this earth. With effort, the man turned over and looked up at Vasco. His face was mangled hopelessly, burned and cut so that only one eye was still intact. He opened his mouth to speak, but all that came from his throat was a choked gurgle. Well, I suppose your last words will remain between you and the Almighty. Vasco raised his sword to finish the man off. The bandit raised his hand and Vasco paused. Dangling between the man's bloody fingers was a dagger. For a moment, Vasco almost laughed. It looked like a pitiful gesture of surrender. And then the bandit stabbed the blade downward, burying it in Vasco's foot. Vasco kicked out with his other foot, rolling the man onto his stomach. Then he brought down his sword, slashing into the bandit's back over and over. The man cried out in pain, writhing in the dirt. Abandoning his foe, Vasco reached down and pulled the knife from his foot with a wince. The mangled bandit moaned, somehow still alive in spite of his wounds. But Vasco didn't strike again. Instead, he wiped his sword on his trouser leg and sheathed it. Breathing heavily, he called out a command to the surrounding soldiers. Leave this one. Let him die slowly. Vasco turned and began to limp back to the horses. He flung the bandit's knife aside in disgust. There was no glory in this victory. He should be home. A detour to Mexico City had delayed their journey, and his children would be missing him. He swung himself into his saddle and winced as his injured foot banged into its stirrup. He could feel the blood filling his boot, but he would not stop for such a minor inconvenience. He had a better life to pursue. 
Sangre del Salvador remained unchanged in the weeks since he'd left. He grimaced at the familiar squalor. He needed to get his family to a real city. The life of a conquistador was an increasingly unrewarding existence. If there were no native tribes to conquer, he would face a life of poverty. Though he dearly wanted to see his children again, he did not go straight to his home. He went to the chapel, the modest adobe building the entire mission was structured around. Father Garcia whirled around, unable to hide his shock at the captain's sudden appearance. Desoria! What a pleasant surprise! Don't bother with the pleasantries, monk. Just let me sit in something that is not a saddle. <sighs> I never would have thought I'd miss one of your pews, Father. Are you here to pray? I am here to rest. I must let myself calm down before I pray. I don't want to say anything I might regret later. I presume your foray did not go as planned. There is no band of Aztec rebels. The rumors were either exaggerated or entirely false. I care not which. Two weeks of searching, and all I got was a wounded foot and notched sword for my trouble. Your wife will be pleased to hear you return home safely. She'll be less pleased when she hears what comes next. But that's why I came to you first, Father. I'm not sure I understand. I've seen how you look at my wife. My beautiful native wife. Come tomorrow morning. She may be yours. You should go home. Clean your wound. Stop talking foolishness. It is no foolishness, Father. Listen to me carefully. Tomorrow, I will take the children and go to Coyoacan. There is a lady there of Spanish birth who I will marry and raise my children in a proper way. But Maria is your wife. <laughs> oh, you poor fool. Do you know she still prays to the Aztec gods, Father? I hear her mutter their names in her sleep. How can our marriage be legitimate if her conversion was not genuine? Garcia fell silent. His hands trembled. Vasco grinned mirthlessly. He enjoyed seeing this self-righteous man so distressed, but that was not his goal. I need you to convince her to stay behind while I leave. You cannot expect me to do this! Can't I? You've made a tidy career out of getting savages to forsake the things they hold dear. She's no different. Vasco stood and patted Garcia on the shoulder. With a grunt, he limped back toward the doorway. He had a family to see. Maria was still haunted by her dream from two weeks past. The visions had been horrible, a boy ravaged by smallpox and a spectral woman in white. But they had not inspired fear in her. The woman was the goddess Siwakwadl, a patron of motherhood. Maria knew that if the gods of her childhood survived, maybe there was hope for her. Maybe she wouldn't vanish namelessly into what her husband called Nueva España. As for what she would do about her husband, she hadn't decided. Father Garcia told her that he was her one chance for a good life in this new world. But putting all your hopes in one man seemed like a foolish notion to her, especially when that one man made his living in blood. 
Vasco burst through the door with no warning. His armor was no longer shiny, and his tunic was stained in several places with mud and gore. He leaned heavily on his left foot, and his right boot appeared to be torn. Mi amor, help me with my boot. Are you injured? It will heal. I just need your help cleaning and binding it before I go to a proper surgeon. Maria helped her husband wriggle out of his soaked boot. It already smelled of rot. The injury itself looked horrible. The soft flesh between Vasco's toes had been split asunder, leaving his big toe dangling off the side of his foot. How did this happen? I encountered that band of Aztec rebels. Had to be 30 men strong at least, against our small band. Five of them set upon me, and I bested them all. This wound was a small price to pay for the safety of Nueva España. The story made Maria pause. It seemed impossible that her husband had encountered the same group of Aztec warriors she had seen the other night. That band, as far as she knew, were still camped in wait at the mouth of the river. If her husband had fought a different band, that meant that the resistance was stronger than even Spanish rumors might claim. A spark of hope blossomed in her chest, though she was careful not to let it show on her face. Are you planning to go to a city for your doctor? Of course. Can't find a decent surgeon here. It's a long ride. Perhaps I can apply some of my own medicine to your injury. You were never a medicine woman. True, but all women in Tenochtitlan were taught certain skills in the case of household injuries. You don't have the skill to repair this kind of wound. No, no, not repair, husband. Just, uh, preserve it so that it will survive the journey to the nearest city. Maria bit her tongue. Of course, not a word of what she said was true. She had no real medical knowledge, but she counted on her husband's prejudices to blind him to this fact. In Vasco's split foot, she had seen an opportunity. He was a cruel man, a warrior and a killer. Those things were clear to her. A wound like this could mean death if handled improperly. She would not be blamed if he died a warrior's death. What do you say, mi amor? <sighs> Very well. But only if you explain to me step by step what you are doing. Of course, my love. A wife keeps no secrets from her husband. Maria dressed Vasco's injury and applied a number of crushed herbs to the bloody gash before tying it up. She made up names for them in her native language and told him what they were supposed to do. In truth, they were all plants her parents had told her to stay away from. He would never return from his trip to the city, and she could take their children wherever she wanted. For once in her life, Maria's future was looking brighter than her past. Up next, Maria and Vasco's plans for the future collide. Now back to the story. Of all the figures that combined to create the weeping banshee La Llorona, possibly the most interesting was a real woman who lived in the 16th century, 
a Nahua woman known as La Malinche. La Malinche was one of a number of women given to Hernán Cortés as slaves early in his conquest of Mexico. She would be his primary interpreter during their conquest and also his lover. Referred to as Doña Marina by the Spanish, her diplomatic skill commanded a great deal of respect from Spaniards and indigenous Mexicans alike. Her son, Martín Cortés, was one of the first mestizos, or people of mixed Mexican and European ancestry. And sometime in the late 1520s, she completely vanished from history. Her fate remains a mystery lost to time. Maria watched as her husband played with their children. He was stumbling about with his bandaged foot, reenacting his triumphant fight against the savages who nearly cut his foot off. She had to force herself to stay silent and not point out the many flaws in his obviously exaggerated story. The children would forget in time. His poorly dressed foot wound would fester, and before he could even reach a doctor in Mexico City, he'd be dead of infection. Maria was not a murderer like him, and she comforted herself with the knowledge that she had not caused his injury. His god might not understand her actions, but perhaps her gods would. The gods she saw in her dreams understood her far better than the god on the cross. She was hanging the children's clothes out to dry when a familiar figure approached her, Father Garcia. She blinked in surprise. This was the farthest she'd ever seen him come from the chapel. Maria, I've been looking for you. Can we talk? Por supuesto, Father. Pero, what do you want with me? I have heard a disturbing rumor, and I wanted your assurance that it is not true. What rumor is this? I've heard you still pray to pagan gods, the gods of your ancestors. Is this true? Father, I have no shrines to them. I make no sacrifices. Just ask my husband. I have. He says you mutter their names in your sleep. This is absurd. Words uttered in sleep are not prayers. But they do show a certain hesitance of spirit. Come with me. Why? I need to begin your re-education. Your soul is in jeopardy, Maria. But together, we will lead you to salvation. Maria cast a glance back to her husband and children. Vasco had been joined by two broad men, members of his gang of conquistadors. He pointed toward her, and her heart fell. This was no idle accusation. They were trying to take her away from her children. Hernán! Francisco! The men were upon her before she could say another syllable. They quickly dragged her to the chapel. Get your hands off me! What are you doing? It pains me to say this, Maria, but your children deserve a mother who lives by Christian values. I used to trust you, Garcia. I thought you were an innocent fool with an open heart. But I see you clearly now. You're just as evil as my husband. I'm sorry. No one will hurt you in here. And tomorrow, we'll begin your re-education. 
The men threw Maria into the chapel and shut the doors. She crouched in the corner and wept. Vasco would take her children to Mexico City, and soon they would not even know her name. As daylight dwindled and the candles inside burned low, Maria finally decided to pray, but not to the God who loomed above her on the cross. Siakuato, I... I have never spoken to you before. Please hear me now. I have no sacrifice to give you, but if you free me from this mission, I will be in your debt. Sangre de Salvador can be your sacrifice. I will give this entire village to you if you let me see my children. They are nothing but murderers and cowards here. Take vengeance for your dead children. The sound of the church bell ringing shattered Maria's prayer. Cries of panic rose from outside the chapel, and then they transformed into screams. Maria could not see what was happening, but she smiled all the same. Vengeance had come for this mission. The chapel doors flung open, knocking Maria onto her back. In the doorway stood Father Garcia. His eyes were wide, face pale with shock. <gasps> Padre. The priest stumbled forward, wavering strangely on his feet. Not paying any attention to Maria, he made his way straight for the altar. Hijo. Maria gasped to see arrows protruding from his side. His robe was soaked through with blood. One of the shafts had pierced straight through his palm. Espiritu Santo. Garcia reached the altar and grasped desperately at the cross behind it, but his fingers could not reach. A moment later, he fell, knocking over the nearby candles. Fire and man reached the floor at the same time, but only one of them rose again. The pews caught quickly, consumed by the growing inferno. Maria gave little thought to the fate of Father Garcia. She turned and ran. The attack that Vasco had been warned of had finally come. Sangre del Salvador was in chaos. Men and women ran every which way, stumbling over bodies. Soldiers in partial armor charged like wounded beasts through the fray, seeking an attacker that knew the land better than they. Spears and arrows lashed from the shadows. And in the distance, a figure in white watched. Maria made her way straight for her home, keeping to the edges of the violence. The burning chapel was all the light she needed to see by. She found Vasco fighting by their home, blade against spear. Blood ran down his face from a cut on his forehead, but he seemed far from beaten. His blade whistled as it bit into his opponent's chest. But Maria wouldn't focus her efforts on that man. She was there for her children. Hernan and Francisco cowered inside their home, tears streaking their cheeks. Maria swept them up into her arms. Come with me, mis hijos. They won't hurt us. She took them out the back of their house and away from the battle. Her feet stung and her breath burned in her chest, but she did not stop until she reached the river, the one place she felt safe. 
I need both of you to be quiet. Bien? Since when have they ever been quiet? Maria whirled around. Vasco appeared through the weeds behind them, sword dangling from his limp arm. He raised the crimson blade at her. You made this happen. You called your savage kin to attack us. I cannot take credit for the destruction you so willingly courted. Francisco, Hernan, come to your father. They will not. Silence. Let the children make their own choice. Maria felt something pulling at her hands. She looked down. Francisco had taken two steps toward his father and was trying to wriggle his hand free of hers. Hernan was doing the same. When she met their eyes, she saw only fear. What had their father told them about her people? How had he sowed such distrust in innocent minds? Maria felt tears swimming in her eyes. Vasco had won. They would grow up to be citizens of Nueva España, with no pride or respect for the people who came before. They would become little versions of their murderous father. There was nothing she could do to hurt him. Nothing except... Lo siento, mis hijos. Maria took her children and forced them beneath the surface. They thrashed against her, but she held fast. Tears rolled down her cheeks, but she kept her gaze fixed on Vasco. She had been baptized for her husband. That's all this was. Another baptism. Vasco cried out in rage and horror. He stumbled towards her, but was not fast enough. His mangled foot slowed him too much. By the time he reached her, both of their children were still. He raised his blade and slashed across her throat. Maria sank into the dark waters without protest. She let the energy drain from her limbs and turned her eyes downward. She wanted to catch at least one last glance of her children before she expired. But the children's bodies were gone. She absently wondered if they had been washed downstream or if Siwakuadl had taken them. And then the waters closed over her head and she was numb. When she rose again, she was clad in white and the world around her was gray. Sangre del Salvador was no more, burned to the ground, but she had no difficulty finding her husband. Vasco had made his way to Mexico City, but his foot had become infected and had to be amputated before he reached it. Every step of the way, she cried for her lost children. The day Vasco died was the one day she did not weep. La Llorona's presence is everywhere in Mexican culture. She appears in folk songs, stage plays, artwork, television, and cinema. This influence has extended to the United States of America, where immigrant communities brought La Llorona to a new level of prominence. In 2019 alone, there were two prominent motion pictures centered around the figure of La Llorona. Stories of La Llorona are separated into two varieties, Encuentro and Historia. 
The Encuentro tales are first-person accounts of the Banshee, and Historia tales explain her origin. The social dynamics in the Historia vary. Sometimes La Llorona is an indigenous woman whose children are taken by their Spanish father who wishes to marry someone of his own race. And other times, the difference is economic. Maria is Spanish, but of lower social status than her romantic rival. Like many folk figures, La Llorona can be repurposed for whatever social needs the teller of the story wants to convey. It could be a run-of-the-mill ghost story or a historical melodrama about the cruelty of imperialism and racism. There is no one La Llorona. She is a Mexican housewife, La Malinche, and Siwacuadl herself. And she will never be silent. Even if she never finds her children, for the rest of time she will stalk the land. Some nights, when close to the border, you can almost hear her sobbing, whispering. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every Wednesday we dive into another dark, classic tale. We'll be back on Tuesday with another epic story. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythology was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, and Dan Velazquez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, remember to follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Tuesday.